Welcome to the Sleeping Barber Podcast. The always brilliant Jennifer Real is back on the show, helping us understand how IDEO fits in the whole landscape of strategy with design thinking. Some always-on lenses for monitoring strategy, how to diagnose strategy, especially bad strategy, and some early warning indicators to help you make strategic changes. Welcome to the Sleeping Barber Podcast, a place for business leaders to get the best and most credible information on marketing, strategy, and innovation. Your hosts, Mark Binkley and Vasily Sturos, share their experiences as they gather insights from the world's leading experts. Now, on with the show. On the show today, we have Jennifer Real. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Welcome back welcome to the show. Back. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. It's my pleasure to be back. Yeah, this is so, we're so excited to have you here. Um, so Jennifer, you're the partner or a partner in Global Head of Strategy at IDEO, uh, formerly adjunct professor and director of Integrative Thinking, Strategy, and Innovation at Rotman School of Business, also the author of a book called Creating Great Choices, which is what we had interviewed you for last time, which was awesome. And um, given all the layoffs and the hype around recession, or is there a recession, is there not a recession? We really wanted to have you back to talk about when to rethink your strategy. So that's in generally, general terms, a theme for today. So yeah, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. So maybe the, just to start, can for the level set on your background and what IDEO is, because it's funny when I talk to people, they're like, I don't know what IDEO is. I've never heard of IDEO. And then generally, it's, you know, your background in terms of context of, you know, how you got into this role of global head of strategy. I think it might be helpful for people just to understand your perspective and where you're coming from. Sure. Um, so if you don't mind, just kind of giving us a little bit of background. Absolutely. So uh, IDEO is a global design and innovation firm founded in Palo Alto, California, about 40 years ago by a great designer and engineer named David Kelly, who is also the founder of the Stanford Design School. Um and it is interesting. I think that that IDEO is is relatively small firm with outsized impact. It is one of the organizations that really helped popularize the idea of design thinking mm-hmm. or the application of a designer's mindset and tools to innovation problems of all kinds. When we started out, it really was a product design firm making things. You know, the first Apple mouse is a, yeah. an IDEO design, for instance. And then over the years, what is designed has expanded from uh, the design of products to include services, to experiences, to organizations and strategies. So Mm -hmm. the idea that, that, again, when you have something that you need to create that is different from what exists today, can you use the tools of design to enable you to do that? And, you know, principally, those tools are starting with an end user and with empathy for the unmet needs of that user as a core principle of how you're creating solutions, diverging before you converge to see if you can go broad and consider many possibilities before choosing a single option, and then um, building, testing, prototyping, making things real uh, would be another big contributor mm-hmm. of design thinking to the world. And so IDEO is not the only firm or organization that has thought and talked about that in the world, but but has certainly been deeply associated with it totally. um, and has helped popularize it in the world. 
uh, that's what IDEO is. And I think it's funny, you know, when I tell people I work at IDEO, I get one of two reactions. <laughs> Sometimes they haven't heard of IDEO, but if they have, typically their answer is, oh my goodness, I love IDEO. So yeah. um, de definitely uh, two extremes uh, of reactions. My own engagement with IDEO uh, began more than a decade ago when I was working at the Rotman School of Management uh, really came to know about the, these tools of design thinking uh, as they could be applied in business, new IDEO through that, got to know some of their leadership. Um, and when it was time for me to think about what my next challenge would be as I was thinking about leaving um, the Rotman School as a full-time gig and what did I want to do next, uh, was really at a, around the point where IDEO was thinking about taking strategy as part of the toolkit of design more seriously and what could would, could strategy bring to the practice of design and what could design bring to the practice of strategy. And so that was a conversation we had been having for a while about that intersection. Mm -hmm. And it just made sense to say, you know, what if I came and joined IDEO and really focused on exploring that, the intersection of the tools of design and the tools of strategy and how that might actually produce a more effective way to do strategy more mm -hmm. effective outcomes of strategy that are really about um, making choices that are future fit, helping you invent the future that you want. Uh, and that's really been the focus of my last almost four years now uh, that I've been hmm. working at IDEO has been around uh, that sweet spot at the, at the intersection of strategy and design. That's awesome. Well, just sorry, if you, yeah, yeah, just ahead. while I'm thinking about it, I'll, we'll put a link in for, there's a, like, I know V and I both have seen this, but there's a, a shopping cart video that I, if anybody's interested, say. Yeah. <laughs> like we can put that in the link if you, as, as like, here's what a process of what that design sure. thinking thing looks like. But I don't know um, if that's something that you want yeah, to I mean, show. <laughs> I, I laugh because it is the single thing most associated uh, with Idea. So in 1999, our, our founder, David Kelly, uh, yeah. did, did uh, a feature, was featured um, on Nightline. Nightline and yeah. in it, they were talking, they sort of followed an IDEO team through the design of something. And because we couldn't you know, show the entire world a client project that was really live, they picked a topic in this, like the redesign of a shopping cart. And yeah. that's what this sort of 15 or so minute video that illustrates the process that designers go through to create. Right. It illustrates those three elements of empathy, user needs, divergence, and then building and testing. Um, and it is absolutely the single thing that we are most known for. We've done so much work. It's been, you know, there've been books written and all of it, but you know, yeah. more than anything, people will say, IDEO shopping cart Shop, video. Right. so we have absolute love and affection for it there is no question um it still gives a pretty good sense of the foundations obviously yeah. that's now 20 almost 25 years ago but it still is the foundation of how we work and and what we what we try to do and it's a delightful charming video anytime you have the chance to see david <laughs> kelly in action highly recommend it um so please please do go ahead no, it's it's funny, and and the reason why it came to mind is you know uh, before you know starting our capstone here, I actually finished off systems thinking. It was taught; mm -hmm. it's being taught by Professor Latham, Doctor Latham. Oh yes, 
And um, what was interesting, he used that video in his class as kind of mm. like, you know, an introduction, if you will. And he asked us to, uh, to analyze it. But th- there's one thing that stuck. And the reason I'm, I'm holding my notebook right now, because I remember mm. I wrote it down. But one thing that always stood out to me was the kind of the mantra, if you will, but like the, the enlightened trial and error success over the planning of the known genius. And I think that in, in a nutshell really, really kind of defines what IDEO is all about. And how that, you know, the empathy, the, the collaborative, mm-hmm. there's no egos, et cetera, et cetera, really ring, rings true. And even if it may be a little cheesy video, it really is showcased in that shopping cart video. So we're going to add it in the show notes because <laughs> I think it's fantastic. a fantastic artifact. I love it. Um, absolutely. That principle of uh, building something that isn't very good, knowing it's not very good uh, yeah. in service of learning, testing and failing and making it better over time. It's, yeah. it's now become quite a pervasive idea, and I think it's really powerful. If you think about how agile software design happens, mm-hmm. it's yeah. the same foundational idea. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, I think of them as sort of uh, tied or sister disciplines, right? They, they have some foundations in common, and one of them is this idea that you know it's not about making it perfect and then launching it in no. the world. It very <clears throat> much is about... Uh, starting low resolution, not very good intentionally. And mm-hmm. over time, your thinking and the execution of that thinking get better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did, um, and just tying that into the work that you've done with, with well, not all the work, but the book that you wrote anyway, mm-hmm. uh, creating great, great choices. I feel like that that process of the ideation uh, divergent is part of a very similar overlap to how you're talking about creating great choices in the book and choices being strategy, you're creating strategy by exploring the strategy, the, the potential of the ideas that exist out there and creating new ones. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's cool to see that overlap between those two disciplines. Yeah. For me, it's actually three disciplines for, for what it's worth. So, Design, we've talked about this idea that, that it is how innovation, new products and services are created. Integrative thinking, as we talked about last time, mm-hmm. can you find a third and better way, a new solution that doesn't exist in the world? And it actually is fundamental to strategy for me. I think there are some approaches to strategy that are, are quite incremental. So um, I say with affection that sometimes the standard operating procedure of creating a strategy is to take the last strategy. Right. And sort of say, okay, what's working, what's not working? How do we wrap this? What? Right. And that is, you know, depending on data from the past, it's about uh, optimizing what is and doesn't create as much space for creation or imagining the future and thinking about the different choices you would need to make for mm-hmm. that to, to actually come to be. And so the idea of some thoughtful, time bound divergence. <laughs> so not spinning endlessly and exploring every possible future, but rather, uh, you know, taking the time you've got to really consider what are the futures that are possible and how how do you think about your role in them mm-hmm. is a fundamental part of strategy for me. It's incredibly important to have moments of divergence. And then, yes, analytical rigor and convergence on real choices and um, really getting to a place of clarity about that. It, it is the same diverge, converge, diverge, converge kind of process we talk about in design applied to the design of choices, which is really what strategy is. For me, foundationally, 
strategy isn't a budget and it's not a hour long PowerPoint presentation and it's not a list of initiatives. It is fundamentally the very specific choices about where you'll play and how you're going to win. What are you trying to build? What competitive advantage do you have as an organization? What are the capabilities and systems that support it? And, and those are actual choices, right? You actually right. have to say we're this and not that. Our mm -hmm. advantage is this and not that. The capabilities that will be critical are these, and we will invest in and resource them appropriately, as opposed to trying to spread the peanut butter across everything we could possibly invest in. Mm -hmm. So it really does for me have a significant overlap to the work that I was deeply engaged in prior uh, to joining IDEO r relating to how you create choices that don't exist previously. Do you, um, to kind of jump into that thought about strategy and the, the, the theme that we're talking about here, where, when do you, when do you rethink your strategy? Um, in stealing from some of the marketing terms that we've talked about, there's a category that's called the strategy is the category we're talking about. So there's different entry points that you might, uh, look at it, jumping into that category of, of work. Are there specific, um, times either when you should be like reevaluating your strategy or like, is it just environmental scenarios like what we're facing right now, these head economic headwinds or bank, bank rate changes, inflation yeah. that you just go, no, it, like we're going to, we have to figure this out now. Or do you just wait till like November when it's annual strategic plans and you just do it then? <laughs> Yeah, I don't think waiting till November because that's when we do strategy is a great solution. Although it's useful to have a moment where you are making sure you're you're checking against your strategy. The way that I think about it is you have to have a bit of an always on capability. You have to, whenever you have a strategy, you have to have a sense of what you expect the outcomes of that strategy to be. Like a written down sense of if this strategy is working, this is what we will see in terms of revenue and profit and you know whatever your most important metrics are whether that's you know our retention of our employees or you know the growth of the category whatever it is um and if you start to see a divergence between what you expect the outcomes to be and what the actual outcomes are that should set off warning bells and i'm not saying that it's a day-to-day -day kind of thing like it's not oh our sales are down this week or even this month, you should be paying attention to that, but there's always going to be noise in the system. Mm -hmm. But you should be using that to bring a couple of lenses to understanding what is driving the outcomes you're getting. To what extent do we believe this is just a little bit of cyclicality or there is a little bit of noise or you know, it rained that weekend and so no one went shopping, right? Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things happen. Um, but rather to say, okay, are there fundamental shifts in our industry right now. So are there things around technology that are fundamentally changing or around regulation that are fundamentally changing? So every organization in the world right now should be saying, all right, what are the impacts of sustained higher interest rates on our customers, uh, on our suppliers, on us as a company, and to what extent does that change our fundamental choices? So we have we're coming out of a period where essentially uh, borrowing was free, more or less, uh, for almost 15 years. 
which is a really long period of the ability to take on debt without it having significant uh, long-term yeah. implications. That period is now over and it very quickly went to you know, sustained moderate interest rates. That has implications for the structure of your industry. And so you have to be able to say, you know, are there things about our choices that need to change given that there is a fundamental underpinning to our, our industry that has shifted? Generative AI could be another one of those questions, depending on your industry. To what extent do you believe that what is happening in the advances in AI poses a specific risk or opportunity to the fundamentals of your business that you need to address right now? So industry is one lens you always want to bring. Customer, unsurprisingly, is another, right? What are we seeing in terms of changes in consumer mindsets, attitudes, behaviors? Some of that's tied to industry. So as we see upheaval in economic terms, some of it related to interest rates, some of it related to inflation, consumer behavior is shifting. Consumer behavior shifted coming out of the pandemic. My 80-year-old father now buys all his clothes online. He doesn't plan to go back to buying them in person. If you told me that five years ago, I never would have believed that would yeah, be possible. Right. No right. And so what is changing fundamentally that may mean that you need to shift something about your strategy? So that's industry, then customer. Third, competition. Are there new entrants? Are uh, your competitors changing their strategies in a way that has a real impact on yours? Strategy is multi-step, right? It's not like you do something and you can just assume that your competitors will keep the same strategy forever. And so if you have a significant competitor or a new entrant that is disrupting the competitive dynamics of your industry, that may mean your strategy needs to change. And then the last lens, yourself as an organization. Are there changes that are happening in terms of your talent, your capabilities, the objectives of the organization, what you're trying to do holistically as a company that mean your strategy needs to change. So you want to be able to always have a lens on those things and be prepared to understand what the shifts mean and, and to understand both the likelihood that it's a permanent shift and the impact of that shift on you. So if it is a temporary shift and a small impact, well, let's wait and see. Let's launch a few experiments and, and see what we can learn. But our strategy is probably okay. If you start to see that it is either a long-term shift or a really significant shift for you, the implications for you are huge, then that's a signal that you're going to have to say, problem to be solved. Strategy should always start with a problem to be solved. The problem to be solved is that our strategy is no longer fit for purpose for the following reasons. It's time for us to imagine what new strategic possibilities are for us, for our business, for our business unit, for our brand, whatever it might be that you're working on. Um, that's really great stuff. And I couldn't agree more. The The four lenses, I think, really kind of puts it into perspective of all the different elements where strategy is really important, but also kind of keeping an eye on those peripherally. You mentioned briefly there, um, you know, kind of looking back at historical data and I know Roger Martin's a huge proponent of, you know, if it's happened in the past, it's the past, you have to kind of look, look beyond that. But, you know, Mark and I have a shared experience in retail. And I remember our leadership time at the, 
at that time was very focused on being comp driven. So, yeah, you know, to this day last year, we were able to do call it, you know, $5 million. Why can't we do $5 million today? Well, there was a snowstorm last year at this time. So, <laughs> but the, the, the reality was they're so fixated on that is being comp driven or looking at historical data, just a lazy way of approaching strategy. So I would say it's not enough, right? So we should pay attention to the data that is available to us in a nuanced way. Um, but we also have to be able to move beyond it. it. It is not enough just to look at the past and say, you know, how are we doing relative to that? Because our world does change. It is incredibly complex and, and sophisticated place that we live in. Yeah. And you need to be able to say, what can we learn about the past? What can it teach us? But also acknowledge that there are limitations to that. There, there are things that data can't capture. There are shifts that mean that the data is no longer relevant. Right. Uh, and so you need to be open to those things. So I want to be data informed in, in the choices that I'm making, but I don't want to be data constrained uh, mm -hmm. in terms of that being mm -hmm. the only input or the only uh, thing that, that matters. I think I have a huge amount of empathy for organizations that are looking at how we compared to last quarter or this quarter last year. And it's because the, the markets drive that behavior, right? right. So markets, uh, it is abundantly clear to us now that being a widely held public company forces organizations to focus on the short term and forces them to at least speak to the markets about comps from quarter to quarter yeah. and year to year. That, yeah. that is what the market demands if you want to be a widely held public company. And, you know, there's really some good data out there about actually why um, more closely held or family owned companies tend to perform better. And it is because they do not have that same intense short term pressure. They actually right. are able to take a longer term view and working with an organization right now that is a family owned co collection of companies. And they have language in their uh, mission and vision around you know, generation after generation. Um, Japanese companies do this well, right? They think about a hundred mm -hmm. year time horizon. Paul Pullman, when he was at Unilever, made this very intentional shift. And it is a widely held public company, but he said to the markets, we are operating for the long term. If you are only interested in holding our stock for a short period and only interested in this quarter's returns, you should probably sell our stock to somebody who wants to be in it for the long haul. Hmm. Um, and that's just who we are. That's how we are going to operate moving forward. And there was, of course, some significant shifts in who held their stock. Um, but I think in the long run, it was, it was incredibly successful for Unilever in terms of getting them a base of investors who were willing to have a more nuanced understanding about what it means to invest in innovation, in growth that isn't bound by a single quarter. I know Amazon, that was a, a big thing from them way back, like from their inception really was the idea of long-term, we're going to do what's right for the customer. And even in all their shareholder reports uh, that Bezos had typed up, the common theme there was like, this is not a decision for today. It's a decision for you know the future of the health of the customer experience and all that kind of stuff it's it's fascinating that you can control that it feels like the market force like it's like the the tail wagging the dog almost it's every now and then you hear there are these examples like you just pointed out with unilever where they're actually taking 
control of the direction of the company. Yeah. And, and yeah, forcing those kinds of longer term decision uh, timelines and horizons. Yeah, I think there's sort of a, a default and then you can break the default. So the default is tell me what you're going to do this quarter this year. Very planned, very optimization, very reliability oriented. And in the absence of a compelling narrative, that's what the market will default to. Right. What Paul Pullman was able to do, what Bezos has been able to do, what others have been able to do over time has been able to say, been able to say, um, actually, this is what we're trying to do. And if that story is compelling, then there will always be a set of investors who are willing to back it. And, you know, if, if Bezos had said, yeah, we're just, we're going to sell some books online. That's what we're building. We're, we're building a retail store that will ship you books. Then I don't think ultimately uh, Amazon would be what it is. Um, part of the magic of Jeff Bezos is he was able to convince the markets to value his company like a technology company and not a retailer, which was mm -hmm. great for him and great for the company, but also true. To, I mean, he, he built a technology led retail platform backed by extraordinary logistics capabilities. And that isn't something you build overnight. That is something that has taken Amazon decades to build. And, you know, they're now one of our biggest and most successful companies, but it was a long journey from, mm -hmm. you know, Bezos's garage uh, to yeah. where they are today. Jennifer, like earlier you touched on this idea that um, the, the where to win, how to play. Um, and as you're describing the levers, uh, sorry, not the levers, the four, what did you call those? Lenses. Like our customer lenses. Yeah. The uh, customer's industry competition org. It occurred to me that there's a framework there between maybe those two things. And I would think customer's industry competition and org kind of fit into some of the where to win, how to play uh, models. But it's it's almost like one of the challenges I've seen is like, what is strategy? And if you don't have a common framework, there's often a lot of time spent. One person says, this is strategy, and it's the long list of things. This is the strategy. And there's another person that says, you can't sum summarize a strategy on a page. And you end up in this scenario where, um, some, and you, you mentioned the diagnosis part or the problem to solve. It, like, it feels like there isn't a problem to solve other than, all these problems are, are 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 for us to fix, and we have this long list of things to do. Mm. So how I mean, do you yeah. how do you yeah like how do you how do you introduce like it's almost like reintroducing strategy the way you're describing it, so that there's a common framework or language to start with. Yeah, I mean, I so I think strategy um, is the set of choices you make to position your company to win in a particular way which doesn't sound so mysterious. And there are many tools and frameworks and processes that you can use. I happen to, to like the one we wrote about in Playing to Win, which, which says that a strategy can be expressed as the answer to five questions. Mm -hmm. What is our winning aspiration? Where will we play? Customers, offers, geographies. How will we win? What is our competitive advantage? What capabilities will we need? in order to win in the way we choose and what management systems or infrastructure will be required. And then 
what we do at IDEO is, is help organizations arrive at robust, resilient answers to those questions through a process of, of designing those choices. Can a strategy be summarized in a single page? If it can't, you probably don't have a crisp enough understanding of what your strategy actually is. Will that single page include all of the nuance and all of the sophistication and all of the supporting plans? Of course not. But if you cannot answer those five questions, then you probably need to push harder on what are we really trying to do as an organization? Even the biggest companies in the world need to make actual choices and trade-offs. If you try to be everything to everyone, the end result tends to be mediocrity. So it, it is about making real choices to win with the consumers who matter most to you with offers that resonate in a way that builds advantage. And so you want to be able to articulate that in a compelling way. And you know, there's going to be a company level strategy that's typically a little bit abstract and about the businesses we're in and mm -hmm. how we're winning as a company. And then they get more specific the closer you get to a real customer, right? So mm -hmm. the category strategy is a little more specific about what brands and what role they play and what jobs to be done. And then a brand or product strategy is very specific about who we're winning with and how we're, how we're winning with them. In terms of the problem to be solved, um, there is always gonna be a long list of things that aren't working in the organization or work to be done. When I talk about the strategic problem to be solved, I'm really saying what is most fundamentally stopping you from winning in the way you're trying to win? Is it something about your playing field isn't working? Is it that your competitive advantage that you used to have is no longer truly an advantage? Is it that there's a mismatch between your playing field that you've chosen and your and your uh, competitive advantage and the capabilities you've chosen to build. You don't actually have the capabilities to produce the the choices that you've made. And, and those are pretty fundamental. Those are really about needing to, to really drill into the most important choices at the heart of your strategy. And of course, there's going to be a whole list of initiatives and things that need to be fixed in the organization. But it's really about as a leadership team, coming to a shared understanding of the, the biggest strategic challenge that you face. And in my own experience, it tends to either be something fundamental has changed about our playing field. The playing field that we're on mm -hmm. is no longer working for us. Yeah. Or something fundamental has changed about our competitive landscape such that our competitive advantage isn't an advantage anymore. Mm -hmm. Those tend to be the two big ones. And then there are, are sometimes companies who actually do have a relatively robust understanding of the playing field on which they wanna compete and the competitive advantage they want, but they haven't yet articulated the capabilities and systems they need and they haven't built them. And so at that point, the strategy is a wish list as opposed to something they actually do. And, and that becomes a problem of activating their strategy as much as it is about the choices they need to make. Yeah. So my, my question was when we're thinking about, you said the, uh, the two lenses there, usually the playing field has changed somehow or somewhat, and that's what's kind of created some sort of uh, a need to change your strategy or the competitive advantage that was in place is no longer 
uh, true, if you will. So when we think of identifying if there is a bad overall strategy, is there a specific way to actually diagnose the source of the problem? Do you use like, say, those four lenses as kind of the the framework in, in approaching that? Is there something else that organizations should be considering as well? Yeah, I think I think it's a great question. And honestly, I mean, this may sound cavalier and I don't intend for it to. I don't spend a ton of time in the diagnostic phase because my belief is organizations and their leadership are pretty mm-hmm. good at saying, given what I know about this business and what I've seen in terms of the data that's coming to me every day, I have a pretty good sense of what the problem is. Like, I know okay. there's a new competitor and that it's damaged our consumer value equation, or I know that our offer is no longer competitive. Like, it doesn't take a ton of mm-hmm. digging mm-hmm. to get to a place where leaders of businesses, if they're in the right role, are able to say pretty quickly, it's 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 this, this is the problem. It's and this. then we spend a great deal of our time, the majority of our time on saying, okay, Let's see if we can solve that problem. Um, And then we do, when we're generating new strategic possibilities, you want to be able to test them to see whether they're likely to actually have an impact on the problem. And uh, it's not about just saying, let's launch the new strategy and hope for the best. It really is about saying, okay, what would have to be true for this new strategy to solve the problem to actually move us forward? Where do we already have information that shows that it's true or we could make it true? And where do we have to go test and learn in order to feel confident in the choice that we're making to move forward? And, you know, that could be a very short process or a very long process. I don't want to suggest that if you are on a burning platform that you need to then spend a year building a strategy. It's not that. Um, It really is about being able to... um, Take the time you've got to think about really what is it that the new strategy needs to do that the current strategy isn't doing. So that's the problem. Mm -hmm. And then what are choices we could make that would actually achieve those outcomes? That's a good question, Pete. Uh, You know, there's something else you mentioned earlier, um, and we were talking about triggers of revisiting strategy, like a recession or inflation and the impact on, on the different lenses you talked about. It occurred to me as we were talking about that just now that there's, there's, there's triggers or maybe not triggers. There's in, environmental forces that might happen over a slow period of time, as opposed mm-hmm. to just, you know, like a, a recession is a very definitive thing. It happens kind of all at once, uh, or at least in a, in a relatively short period of time within two quarters. But you might have something like outsourcing of core capabilities that happens over years as opposed Mm -hmm. to two quarters that erodes the value. And so I wonder, like, is that part of why the the annual strategic planning sessions are so important to check on those kinds of things? Yeah, I think it's actually a really great point, Mark. I I think that the annual moment is is just a mechanism to make sure that strategy is is not forgotten about or or not given its due, right? And um, I think you absolutely want to have a sense as a leadership team of what are macro trends 
in the world that we need to be paying attention to holistically. Um, This is things like outsourcing. It's things like technology. It's generational change in your customers and in your workforce um, to see, you know, there, there are just some ways in which the generations do have fundamental differences. And if you show up trying to win with uh, Gen Z workers the way you tried to win with boomer workers, it's unlikely to be successful for you. And so you want to understand what are those macro trends that you need to pay attention to. And they should be an input to your decisions, um, strategy and otherwise, that, that you're just taking seriously what it is that's happening in the world. I know leaders are incredibly busy, um, but if you do not have a subscription to at least two different newspapers that you go and spend time in, um, then I think you risk losing sight of those macro shifts in the world. Mm -hmm. If you as a leader don't have a perspective on what it means for your business to be in China right now, and what might be the directions that that China could be heading from a geopolitical perspective. That has impact on your supply chain. That has impact on your potential customer base. It has huge implications. And so um, I I read the Globe and Mail and I read the New York Times. And um, I think it's important uh, for us to do those sorts of things and even like, what is happening in the arts or in sports that can influence what's happening more broadly? So if you're saying like there's so much gamification that is happening in business and that comes from the world of e-gaming. And so Mm -hmm. being able Mm -hmm. to understand the implications of some of those things and see early trends, um, I think sets you up well to have more nuanced and sophisticated conversations about your strategy. Yeah. I first of all, Mark, that was a great question. And when I think about the, the many organizations fall into this trap of being sometimes a little bit myopic. Uh, there's a there's there is an example in my head. I don't want to share which organization it was, but I remember at the time they were making a decision, even though they would always prioritize the customer, always put the you know best intentions, put them first, et cetera, et cetera. There was a moment in time where it's like, right now we have to do what's right for the bottom line mm-hmm. because there may not be a company mm-hmm. in in two quarters, sure. and that was a really difficult decision or a realization to have in that moment that you're you know you're going to sacrifice what's made you successful just to be able to stay present. And I wonder if you've you know had a similar experience where you've seen organizations make some of those really difficult decisions that may go against their ethos it may go against who they are or how they've built their organizations but because of external factors or some maybe also self-inflicted if i'm being honest um how, how do you navigate i guess a situation like that i mean what you're talking about is extraordinarily difficult and and sometimes there's a confluence of events outside of your control that that push your organization into crisis mode. I think the greatest danger in that moment is to make choices that are the opposite of what your long-term strategy mm. is. Like you still have to understand what you're ultimately trying to build and see whether there is a way to do what you need to do that does least damage to the direction right. you're trying to move into. So 
like often you'll see organizations in a, in, in a moment of financial crisis, the first thing they do is cut R&D. I understand mm -hmm. why, I mean, R&D is a big cost and it's a long-term bet, but if you're an organization that cannot thrive without new products and services, then I think it's really difficult to make sense of how you're going to come out of this moment without some degree of investment in R&D. Right. So how do you focus your R&D efforts as opposed to a blanket cut across the board and hope for the best? Mm -hmm. So how does your strategy inform the way in which you make those difficult choices? Can it lead you to, to make slightly, again, more nuanced choices in the face of a very difficult environment that do mm -hmm. least damage to your long-term prospects? And, you know, right. sometimes the world around you changes so much or so quickly that you're not able to adapt. And, and you know, yeah. it's called creative destruction for a reason, right? Sean Peter and others talked about the fact that, you know, there can be such fundamental change in the world that, that it ultimately um, destroys advantage. Often, you know, we're, we're all Canadian and for many years, Canadians were extraordinarily proud of Research in Motion as this amazing, tech yeah. star mm -hmm. that invented a category of the, of the smartphone really in, in a way that hadn't existed and dominated that category and now is a is a tiny shell of what it once was and yeah. um it's sad for a lot of reasons but also you know if you could i i used to say this to to my mba students when they were beating up on the leadership of research and motion i would say if you could pick two companies on earth to not come, come for your business. Like just name two companies, like everyone else can come for my business, but two that I would not want to have come for my business. I think they would have been Apple and Google. And those are the two companies that came for research in motions business. And, yeah. and ultimately the consumer orientation, uh, of beautiful, intuitive, amazing design that interacted as an ecosystem won the day with consumers, even though Research in Motion was brilliantly positioned to win the day with IT departments and mm -hmm. with company uh, procurement departments. It turns out that the consumer pull of the iPhone was so strong that yep. you know it didn't matter that the company preferred you to use the more secure option yeah. because people yeah. didn't want to have two phones and then they're like, oh, fine, I will just buy my own. And bring your own device became. There's the there's no way you would know this, Jennifer. But v was <laughs> V was an influencer for BlackBerry for a while. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! What he, a journey! What a journey! We, as we were talking about this prep, he's like, you know, the the BlackBerry. <laughs> he's just reminiscing about it. He, the fact that we were just talking about research in motion for me brought back so many amazing <laughs> memories, and the one thing that always stood out. And they were quick to acknowledge themselves as well. So I can be really angry at leadership uh, there. And yes, there were decisions that were poor at some points in time, but they became a consumer product by accident. They were never, they were never oriented in that, in that realm. Like you said, they were positioned as a highly secure device that obviously a lot of IT departments and loved them to death for. And, um, you know, and I think that's the, the the kind of thing, like if you have an organizational strategy, maybe the strategy was just to stay down that path. They weren't able to shift quick enough 
into this new landscape that was now, okay, the commercialization, if you will, of smartphones, where Apple came out of left field somewhat and just changed that game completely. Yeah, now you find yourself almost three years behind. So, yeah. I mean, That's sometimes, a, it's a fact in the case. Yeah, sometimes there are bigger challenges than others. Like, let's just name that. Sometimes there are bigger yeah, challenges yeah, yeah. than others. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I want to be. I hear you. Um, I want to be fair to the folks who were running BlackBerry. They faced some pretty significant challenges. Um, but again, right. how might they have been <clears throat> paying attention to the evolution of the industry in mm-hmm. a different way to see early yep. signals of what Apple might be seeking to build? And the consumer yep. behaviors in particular mm-hmm. that were likely to, to lead to different kinds of outcomes. Um, so there is no um, there is no perfect way to know when your strategy needs to change. It, it is a, an understanding that a leadership team needs to come to together. But my observation is most companies wait until it is later than optimal right. uh, yes. to start having that yes. conversation. So it's not when you start to see little whiffs of smoke on the platform, but when it is already careening into the sea. And so you want somewhere between those two moments to be taking yep. your your strategy conversation seriously. I, you know, it's, it's like big company, small company. The thing that's interesting to me about what you guys were just discussing um, is we were talking about a big company and and Apple, big company going after these other companies, um, going after Rim. It, you kind of need a pulse on the market, and so and that means, in in a sense, probably updating your customer competitor research on a regular, somewhat regular basis, whether it's six months or one year or something like that. I don't know that you want to wait much longer than a year, but. To your point about departments getting cut, oftentimes it's the R&D team, but then customer insights and, and market research yeah. is often cut as well. So I wonder at that point, like, are there – have you seen companies do this where they do look for signposts in the market of like, you know, the the water is boiling, the frog and, the, you know, the whole thing about um, is the water boiling or is it just, you know, still the same temperature? Um, and are there ways to put early or leading or lagging indicators in your report to know when the right time is to reevaluate? I think there are a couple of dimensions to this. So one, I'm a big believer in holistic voice of the customer research that improves, includes both qualitative and quantitative uh, approaches to understanding what's happening with your, with your customers. Mm -hmm. Um, if you want to understand what might be happening further out, I think, Edge users or extreme users are really interesting. Mm -hmm. So who are people who are either uh, incredibly devoted and use your products in like kind of extreme ways? Think of North Face wanting to test all of their products with people who are literally climbing Mount Everest, right? That Mm -hmm. that is a edge user. Um, But you could think of if this were 10 years ago and you were a technology company, who were the people who were already working remote, who were already, you know, totally digital nomads way early on? What could we have learned from them? So there's that part of it. That's important. The other thing is thinking about what are the under leveraged ways you have access to the voice of your customer that don't require 
a big team to go do a report or to hire IDEO to help you understand your consumers, although you should definitely do that. Um, <laughs> your salespeople, <laughs> the mm -hmm, front totally. line folks are with yeah. people <clears throat> that they're trying to sell to, whatever, whether you're B2B or B2C, right? There's some mechanism by which you are trying to sell. How, how is that going? What are they hearing? What is the feedback? And each of those people is gonna have a tiny slice of the full understanding, but do yeah. you actually have mechanisms to hear from them? Genuinely, truly to hear what that. they are getting yeah. from the market. And if you don't, that is a huge missed opportunity because that's customer yeah. research that's happening every minute, all day. In your door. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a good point. Even, even for- I love that. Like I used to, when I was in pharma, we used to have ride-alongs all the time. So the manager or the the regional manager, whoever would often come around and hang out. And so like as a sliver of seeing five customers a day, let's say, over time that starts to build up and you start to see patterns or win-loss reports and B2B follow-up follow deals, things like that are, yeah, that's interesting. The edge users one, as you were saying that there's, I swear, I swear there, it might have even been IDEO that did this, but there was this article I saw a bunch of years ago. I think it was Nike or somebody trying to make a new pair of shoes and they hired, um, um, what do you call it? Oh my gosh. Women dress up or guys that dress up like men or women. Why can't I think of the word for those show, uh, like for drag. drag. They they hired a whole bunch of drag queens. Performers, to, yeah. Yeah, performers to try on shoes and describe the shoe and like how it felt. And, because they were an, an edge group. They were like, oh, they, I don't know, for whatever reason, they thought that was an interesting edge group. But uh, to try and design men's shoes or shoes for men with. But anyway, it's just things like that where you get extreme user groups and like that would be a small test in that scenario where you don't need to create giant budgets to do stuff like to do small market research. It's interesting. Um, just the day-to-day -day stuff though, that exists that is right in front of you and you kind of miss it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the power of the front line or the sales teams is so, and I think all too often many organizations probably suppress those two departments more than they probably should, or there's no real, um, maybe suppressing not the right word, but maybe there's no real mechanism for feedback to come up into leadership positions yeah. where to those that are actually, you know, uh, creating strategy or, or altering it. So, yeah, those are fantastic points. If So let's say there's a scenario like COVID, we actually had a couple of these scenarios recently. COVID beginning was a trigger. COVID ending might have been yeah. a trigger as well for a lot of business models. Um, we've got a potential recession. I mean, there's moments like this that say that we were talking about tech layoffs earlier. Like there's a lot of these things that are happening. I suspect there's, um, also an urge to do something. What that is maybe isn't clear, but just to, to do something to fix the problem. Um, is there, um, I know you said there's more art than science, but is there a right time to try and do something or is there a right time like if you've got these reports coming in with leading and lagging indicators if you're if the tendency is to react too late is there you know is there better time to try and do something yeah i wish i had a, a hard and fast answer for you on that i think it's so context dependent 
I think that, you know, people needed to react to COVID because so much changed mm-hmm. overnight. Yeah. And the question was, do we need to make permanent changes or temporary changes? Right. And often that needs to be the lens that you bring. Is what is happening a temporary disruption or is it a permanent disruption? And so, you know, there may be things about COVID consumer buying habits that ultimately on the long tail are going to trend back to what they were before. But the disruption of global supply chains was so extreme that I think a lot of organizations are saying, I need a more resilient supply chain. Like that shock was so significant that I need to start thinking a little bit differently than I have been. Like I simply cannot have all of my manufacturing in China moving forward. Like it Mm -hmm. is, it is too high risk to a shock like this. And so I now need to start to design uh, a more distributed near shoring kind of an approach. Lots of organizations are having those conversations. So in part, it's like how permanent uh, is the change? Start working on it, you know, with a, with a strategic mindset, if it's a long-term change, if you think it's a short-term change, you can be more tactical. What do we have to do right now to get through this period? Um, And similarly, the implications, if it's a small implication, How do we tactically just address it right now? If it's a big implication, what's the strategy conversation that we need to have to start to build what we ultimately need? So for me, it does go back to this lens of what's the scale of the impact and what's the horizon of the shift that we're seeing that's going to lead you to behave in different ways. But if it's a really significant shift or it's a really long-term change, then that's where you need Mm -hmm. to say it's time for us to really start taking this seriously from a strategic point of view from a fundamental strategy question versus a shorter run or lower impact shift. What are the tactics within our current strategy that need to shift? The strategy is not changing, but how we stand it up or how we enact it might change. Hmm. Have you got like two or three more minutes, Jennifer? Yeah. Okay. V, do you want to go? You know, I'm, I'm, my mind is kind of racing between two, two things kind of like functionalizing a lot of this stuff and kind of thinking about, Hey, how can we preemptively make organizations more uh, resilient? Well, no, maybe not resilient, but just like ready for whatever comes next. And I think Mark, the way you just talked about COVID, you know, I was working in the airline industry at the time and it had such a profound um, change to everything operationally. The um, I'm talking about cultures. We are talking about, you know, everyone working remotely and we, you know, leading up to to this call here, one, one thing that we're noticing now, organizations are moving away from like the full remote, more hybrid environments or trying to bring people back in-house. So I'm, I'm trying to think right now, like this is this is a strategic decision or some organizations are making. And when you've had it one way, so you've you decided COVID, everyone's remote. Now we're trying to bring this back isn't that going to create friction again that could be self-inflicted? And for me, I'm just trying to think about ways where organizations don't bring this onto themselves because retention could become an issue now for something or you're going to lose top talent or I'm just trying to, I don't know, somewhat compartmentalize a lot of this to think like what is self-inflicted? What isn't self-inflicted? And how can you set better controls in, in your organization to, I don't know, avoid, especially the ones that are self-inflicted. Yeah, I think um, one thing that comes to mind as you're, as you're talking is the tendency in organizations to default to 
um, reorganization <clears throat> as the solution to when things aren't working. Oh. Mm -hmm. And that's so wildly disruptive. Any reorganization, even if it's in service of really great things, is going to disrupt your organization. Yeah. And so too will a reduction in force or layoffs. They will disrupt your organization. And you have to be very intentional and, and thoughtful about when it is worth um, being that disruptive. And with layoffs in particular, like that is a very significant human toll. No one ever wants to be in the position of having to do those things. And so I think you want to be able to say, you know, we understand what the disruption will be and how do we think about the choices that we need to make. In terms of work from home, remote work, um, it's really interesting to follow that conversation because I think that, again, it feels like people are taking quite an all or nothing approach to it. Yeah. And for me, it is a strategic choice. There are some individuals and workers who want to work in person three, four, even five days a week. That is, that is how they want to work. And there are workers who want to work 100% remote. And there is no way that there is a perfect mapping in any organization in the world right now where the choice the organization is making is perfectly mapped to their workforce. Mm -hmm. And so we yeah. are in this moment where there's a huge amount of um, disruption and flux as we're trying to figure out how do people find the environments in which they want to work. I think one thing we have found is that the modern office, at least as it is currently constructed, rows of cubicles, is not a great environment for anyone to spend right. their time five days a week, right? If you're right. doing heads down work, a cubicle is just absolutely the worst place for you to do it in. But mm -hmm. collaboration and creative energy does benefit from human interaction and being together. And so mm -hmm. for me, it is as much about figuring out the whens and the whys of coming together that, I mean, organizations seem to be thinking of it as days of the week. I'm like, well, actually, what right. are the, what are the moments mm -hmm. that actually yeah, require like that. the the team to be together? And to be clear, I think there are absolutely some organizations that can say our strategic choice is we're all in person all the time, because that's the, the kind of organization we want to be just as organizations are saying, we want to access talent from around the world. And therefore, yeah. we are going to have a, a highly remote world uh, of, of talent. But you then need to structure the rest of your strategy thoughtfully mm -hmm. around those choices. Mm -hmm. They're not separate decisions from your culture and your leadership and how you engage and your capabilities and your systems. And like they, they need to be considered um, together with mm -hmm. all of those other choices. It's yeah, that, the hybrid one is fascinating. It's like such a it, because it was so distinct the moment in time when it went from zero to a hundred and then yeah. seems to be going back to zero again. Um, I I don't know if you have. Can I ask you one more question? Yes. Okay. Because there's the statement about um, a poor strategy is well executed is better than a great strategy poorly executed, and I just wonder if, in your perspective. Yeah if that's a real thing, because it's something you hear about all the time. Uh, I smile when you raise that because my mentor <laughs> is a man named Roger Martin. And that statement makes him crazy. Head explodes <laughs> when someone says that, because he says, if your strategy cannot be well executed, it is by definition, a bad strategy. 
Like he does not consider them as separate things. Mm -hmm. And so for me, um, I do think it is important to acknowledge that part of a good strategy is that you have designed an effective path to activating it. Otherwise your strategy isn't done. It's not yet a good strategy. It might have thoughtful mm -hmm. choices, but strategy has to contain within it the action the organization needs to take. And if you are not designing your systems, designing your plans in a way that ensure that that strategy will be enacted, you have failed to create a good strategy. So I'm not quite as feisty as Roger mm -hmm. would be on this point, but I am a little <laughs> bit feisty on it, which is like, how would you know the strategy was good if it has not been executed yeah. in a positive way? Mm -hmm. Like it's this assumption that mm -hmm. I, strategy genius, created a brilliant strategy and the people around me failed to deliver, yeah. which is a pretty arrogant way of thinking about it and probably actually tells you a lot about why <laughs> the people around that genius failed to execute it. Um, because you need to take an approach to creating strategy that ensures that people understand the strategy, have mm -hmm. belief in the strategy and know how to translate it to action. And if you fail to do those things, you do not, by definition, have a good strategy. Yeah. Jennifer, I can't thank you enough for this. This is just yeah. such a joy to chat with you about this topic. Um, how can people find out more about you and IDEO? Uh, so you can uh, come find IDEO and myself on LinkedIn and IDEO's on Instagram. I am not because I am old and dusty um <laughs> st still on still on twitter while it's around um, fingers crossed yeah you can you can search for us and you can find us in lots of different ways awesome thank you so much this was incredible jennifer thank you my pleasure and here's the post pod with v and mark mark hey v guess what what? It's post-pod time. <laughs> I don't know why I think this is such a fun little <laughs> game that we play. <laughs> For us, it's fun. It's really entertaining. Our listeners like, just get over it, I think, boys. <laughs> yeah. I know, it's the post-pod guys. <laughs> just get on with it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Jennifer. Yeah. Um, so much to chew on there. Um, and yeah, so much... Um, thought from her perspective on strategy like i really i like i say this i feel like i say this about a lot of people but i, I genuinely really like how much uh time she's put into it and I, I like into thinking about what strategy is and what it isn't and how you create it and how you make decisions in integrative thinking into the design thinking in this strategic like <sighs> there's a lot to chew on there it's really good it's actually when anytime we have an opportunity to talk to someone like Jennifer, it's really humbling because as much as I think I know around strategy, mm -hmm. making those strategic decisions, being a strategic thought leader in an organization, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I quickly realize, oh my God, I just don't know what she knows, you know? Yeah. And I think in the way that she speaks and she articulates her thoughts, it just, it just goes to show you that, there is a, there is a, um, I don't want to use the word framework, but there is a, a genuine thought process that goes behind great strategic thinking. 
Mm-hmm. And that comes with experience. It comes with uh, constantly, you know, learning, uh, spending time with other incredible um, yeah. people that really push those boundaries. Yeah. You know, some of the examples that we brought up, you think about, you know, the airline industry being disrupted or mm-hmm. research in motion. I think it's a totally. fantastic example, actually, to think like what could have been different. And if you're standing up an organization or you're in an organization, you don't have to look too far to say, hey, well, if BlackBerry had seen, mm-hmm. you know, or opened up BlackBerry Messenger, they would have been fine. BBM, for example. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, yeah, in hindsight, it's 2020, of course. But mm-hmm. they were protecting at that point something that was key to their to their consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at the end of the day, it's just strategy for me is such a um, very interesting topic to get into. Totally. And, you know, Jennifer is just incredible. And Yeah, I, I agree with you, the humbling part, because, <clears throat> yeah, like... I, I f- and because it's about making choices, I, I mm-hmm. do love that. It feels to me like there's an obvious place here for confirmation bias. Oh, yeah. In that you want your choice to be picked, <clears throat> right? And so you end up yep. in this scenario where you you might gain the system to make your choice more attractive. Totally. Um, which part of that salesmanship, but but if you're trying to get people on board with an idea and the reasons why you picked a strategy, the set of choices as opposed to other set of choices, mm-hmm. um, and to have it lasting and to have it impactful and have each of the departments within the organization then take that on as their own and build their strategies to support their original one, mm-hmm. I think it needs to be internalized and become their idea as much as it is your idea well when you think about which strategies potentially fail um more often are the ones that lack buy-in even if you have you know you go to an organization you say hey we think i think this is what it is i've worked collaboratively with all these other stakeholders we think this is you know the potential solution to a problem that we've been able to identify Mm-hmm. The moment you can achieve buy-in, you're already giving yourself a better uh, chance of achieving success because you've, you know, likely have a strong strategy. You've achieved yeah. buy-in, or at the very least, you're going to come back and say, "Okay, here's are the areas that we can change now because now we have a strong idea of what worked and what didn't." Yeah. So I think that's that's fundamentally important. But it also goes back to all those other conversations that we've had with numerous of our guests. It's like. You know, how do you navigate the internal language of all the various departments in your organization? Mm-hmm. Making sure you are spending time with everyone and understanding mm-hmm. what their worlds look like, mm-hmm. not just applying your lens to their problems. And I think yeah. it's it's a misconception here that you know you're gonna you know find that silver bullet, but it's it's not. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. I do think <clears throat> we talked about the playing to win strategy as mm-hmm. a as a model. Um and I think it's important whether it's that Jennifer made this point too. It's important to have a model like pick one. Pick but one. Pick one. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like cuz I think you you can have the scenario where you and I V might talk to one another about yeah yeah, well, no, no my strategy is this and you could say my strategy is this. Yeah. We 
we might actually be saying the same thing, but we're saying it in a different way. So then it's yeah. confusing because we don't we don't have the same model. Or you might come to a different conclusion because of a different model, and I might become come to a different conclusion because of a different model, which might create tension between us yeah. uh, just because we have a different model. So I think it's less about, to her point, which model you pick, but that you have one to start with at least. And if it's, uh, she said it differently, but product market fit essentially is the way I was thinking of it. If yeah. if the model doesn't meet your needs, then you can change the model, but everybody should at least start with the same model. So there's a common understanding of what we're trying to achieve as far as the, the language and the framework. Yeah, I, I agree with that statement. And I would even say, you know, because she brought this up as well, is how do you achieve also an always-on strategic mindset as well, right? Mm-hmm. It's not something that happens. Sorry, the action may be happening once a year when you're doing your annual, annual planning or strategic, yeah. whatever you want to call it. But having this like always-on mentality around your key strategic pillars or, you know, the lens she talked about the four lenses, which was industry customer competition, and then your, your organization. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a way that those four pillars, if you will, if they're, if they're the very least being reported on consistently in a very, um, I don't know, easy to digest manner that Mm -hmm. goes a long way in helping build that always on strategic mindset or, at the very least, it creates the the platform for you to start questioning things. So mm-hmm. if we use, you know, for example, competition, it's like, you know, our product X is no longer selling at this level. Do we know that, you know, company Y's latest launch has a, is actually impacting that or not? Yeah. So at least it gives you areas to go start poking and scratching. Right. And I think that's at least that for me, that's always on strategic mm-hmm. mindset where you're not just waiting to once a year to have those conversations. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, because going back to the model thing, if you have an agreed upon <clears throat> model, that also gives you an agreed upon diagnostic tool. Exactly. Right? Like, because then you've got a common framework from which you know that everybody's kind of working. It's like, it's like sheet music. Like yeah. if you, if you have the same, if you're playing the same song, with the same notes, like mm-hmm. it'll sound way better than if you're playing two totally different songs or even the same song in a different key. Like it's, it's just not going to work. Yeah. Um, the, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, um, talking about the strategy and execution thing, I just wrote down Moneyball. Did you ever see the movie? Loved that. Loved good movie, it. Eh? Yeah. So, so fun. So to me, like the idea of strategy and execution, I think about this one all the time. There's a scene in the movie where they have the strategy of of Moneyball, which is mm-hmm. get players that are statistically, you know, the higher on bat per, on base percentage players. Yep. Um, but they don't tell them what they're there for, and then the teams doing terribly, and you know they're like, "What's going on? These guys, they're professionals. They should just figure it out." And then. <laughs> Later on in the movie, they're like, okay, we actually need to tell them <laughs> why, they're why they're here. And they, they don't have to be like superstar performers. They just have to keep doing what they're doing. Yeah. And so there's that that moment where I'm like, yeah, that's like the execution. Like they're connected. 
Yeah. You can come up with, you know, you can pick all these players for all kinds of reasons, but it's until they realize why they're there and what they're doing and how they contribute to the overall vision that, um, that you, you, it's only, it's, it is money ball. I think in the way that that is a great strategy. Great analogy. Yeah. I think about that one all the time. It's just, it was when I, I didn't even realize it when I saw it, but it's just one of those things where it's like, huh, that's cool. That is really, 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 really good, Mark. <laughs> well done. Right? Yeah. No, it's honestly, if you think about when you're putting together a team, not a sports team, like even, you know, at work, you're creating job descriptions and whatnot. People don't come to work for you if they don't know what it is that you're actually asking of them. Right? Mm-hmm. But maybe as hiring managers, one thing you can articulate is, hey, the reason why I chose you, while well, things are equal, it's because of these unique assets that you bring. It could be, mm-hmm. you know, a personality trait. It could be ability to collaborate, whatever. And I think that just helps people orient themselves within within a team. With then, obviously, by by extension, in a larger organization, to say, okay, I am here. This is what I'm supposed to do. Here's what's expected of me. Now let's go and do it. And I think that's. Mm-hmm. Having that is is extremely powerful. The I know we we would not we would have we did talk to her about this uh, the first time around. The five questions I wrote them down again because I think they're they're a great way. Um, I guess you can call them a framework, if you will. Uh, but they're they're five great questions that you can just literally ask internally to get a sense of do we have an orientation and. It was, what was it again? Uh, What's our winning aspiration? What is our winning play, aspiration? How to win. Exactly. Management systems and uh, capabilities. Capabilities. I think that's very, very easy for anyone to do to kind of, again, start building that foundation or that mm-hmm. of like, okay, how do we build a strategy from here? Does, what are <clears throat> What is our aspiration constantly changing every other week? Mm-hmm. If it is, you should probably have a conversation about that. Yeah. Or who we perceive our our competition is always changing. Yeah. So we can't be everything to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So that cascade, I, I love, I, I've used that one. I, I like it a lot. It's um, originally in the book, playing to win as far as, as far as I know with yeah. Roger Martin, AG Lafley. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's deceptively simple. <laughs> like it, yeah. it asks questions that you're like, yeah, what is our winning aspiration? And you can, put it in chat GPT and find out, but, <laughs> probably, but, but I think to answer that question, have people align on and agree that it's, it's not a small task to answer that quench that question. Yeah. That requires a lot of deep thought. Um, and, and especially the bottom end of that cascade, you right. got to where to win or sorry. Yeah. How, where to win, how to, or how to, how play, to play, where to win, where to win. And then, capabilities and management systems so the capabilities and management systems part is i think where that execution component comes in because Mm -hmm. you have you need uh i don't let me just let me make one up if let's say you're (laughs) you're trying to compete in the global underwear market ah you you'll need some kind of capability on shipping and supply chain logistics Mm mm-hmm so you need people and and then the management systems might be like tracking software and like so you can see where your product is and around the world being shipped on containers. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have that stuff, you're going to be putting yourself at a competitive disadvantage. Disadvantage, yeah. 
No, and I a, think that's where a lot of the, like the, especially the bottom, it's easier to come up with the winning aspiration. Yeah. And then people will go, oh, that's our, that's our strategy. And then here's a list of 15 or 25 things that we're going to do. Yeah. But no, the succinct summary of it is that cascade. Yeah. No. Well, let me ask you this. What else really stood out to you in our conversation with, with Jennifer today? Um, the, you know what, this one has come up a lot, uh, but is like, so cutting R and D, but part of that is the R part is research. We talked about market research, um, with Andrea and we've talked about market research over and over again. It seems to me like with Mary, I think too. Yeah. Like just the idea of understanding customers and doing customer research and even as so far as as jennifer like that was a great example with the talking to the sales teams like having a pulse on what people's needs are and tracking that over time is really valuable and yet it's often one of the things that gets cut so uh, so first in any kind of downturn yeah that marketing sorry research marketing what was the third one We brought it up in the call. Anyways, I, I, I was going to say the same thing. And, you know, the idea of understanding those edge users, you know, the, mm-hmm. or the extreme users as she, uh, as she articulated it. Because I think in those moments, you kind of start picking up on behaviors that, you know what, can this be amplified if mm-hmm. scaled, you know, or, you know, and I think it's, it's such a small group, but there's an opportunity to learn a lot from that group and it can influence potentially product design it can influence services differently like there's so much there that you can learn and at the end of the day it's it's just being willing to put yourself in the position where you're collecting this information and you're Mm -hmm. actively reviewing it and understanding its importance or understand what strategic uh, importance it actually has right to defining your entire strategy Um, right because at the end of the day you're frontline man they're probably the most important part of delivering your product or service. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the front, like that's where the connection, I think it obviously is for brand uh, building and customer facing Mm -hmm. activities. But, but I think that's where you have two different levels of information. You, the information at the front line is I can see the tree, the information if you can, tr- you know, aggregate that, then you can go, oh, I see the forest. Yeah. And it's, it's that change over time. Cause each tree might just be noise, right? Like you might be one thing says one thing, another yeah. one says t- something totally different, but in aggregate that might help you see the shape of the entirety of the market, or at least, you know, your part of the forest that, yeah. that it exists. Strategy, man. It's, I think we can just do every episode on strategy and we'd always be thinking or seeing or hearing something different. It's such a big topic that, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's hard to do right because you, I think what makes it hard sometimes there's conflicting opinions internally that you're always navigating. But the reality is, is finding that alignment is so important and Mm -hmm. find a framework, stick to it. You know, it doesn't matter which you choose. You want to use playing to win, use it. It's five easy questions. 
but at the same at the same time, it's it's probably the single most difficult thing to get right in an org. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. You could be right. I, I think it's difficult because it takes work to get there and discipline. And it's yeah, and discipline to get there. Yeah, you, you think a lot of organizations, especially the bigger ones, they have their own corporate strategy, or they have like their own teams that are sole responsibility is looking and building this out, and they try yeah. to keep them somewhat. I don't want to say distant from other internal teams or the teams that are delivering day to day. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, you know, I don't know. It, well, it, it, on that note, like it, I know with the plane to win strategy, the other thing that it has is um, like the five questions we were asking about mm-hmm. at a corporate level, but mm-hmm. then there's also sub levels. So then it's not enough. In other words, part of the communication, it's not enough to have just the corporate level commu- strategy set. Then at that point, it's important for every department or division within the organization right to create their own connected set of choices that are laddering up to the organization's yeah. uh, overall strategy and so i think oftentimes that's where it can go wrong is that you don't give the people under you time to figure out their department strategy that is reinforcing your corporate strategy right so it's just that execution going yeah, here's our corporate strategy. Go. Cool. You know what I mean? That's true. Yeah. You know, I think I would love to have maybe something like note to selves. Um, how do you internalize corporate strategy or how do you build it internally? Yeah. Um, the right way. I think that'd be a good conversation to have. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, like I feel like if you start – strategic conversation your strategy conversation in october november let's just say october beginning of q4 mm-hmm. then november should be about the departments finishing their strategy yeah december should be about making sure they're all connected mm-hmm. and then january you can hit the ground running assuming you're running on a fiscal year calendar year mm-hmm. as opposed to what happens a lot of times it seems like oh yeah the strategy's coming the strategy's coming <laughs> and then you know it's almost the end of Q1 before you see the final version of the corporate strategy and you're already quarter into the way, quarter of the way into the year. Just think about this though. How many times have you been told strategy is coming, wait for the strategy, then you can build out, you know, your, your plan. Oh, strategy is delayed. We still need your plan. So how much money do you need next year? Totally. Yeah. And then you're like, but what's the strategy? It's like, it yeah. doesn't just assume it's the same. It's like, Okay, so I'm going to assume that yeah. it's the same without understanding maybe there's something's changed in the environment. Am I targeting the same segment? Like, <laughs> yeah. it, again, the, the tail wagging yeah. the dog, right? You're just, I don't think every organization I've worked for has always somewhat operated that way, unfortunately, which is unfortunate yeah. because that's where you, th- that's where, again, we talked about like strategy needs, there needs to be rigor and discipline behind it. Yeah, I don't know if many organizations do give it that the the, the actual um, maybe respect. I don't know. There's just not enough structure around it to actually you know give the the, the organization that that direction that you need that yeah. can inform budgets, that can inform tactics, yeah. that can inform 
you know, yeah. everything subsequently. Yeah. It's like, and so it is written. And so, yeah. <laughs> and so, okay, now so, what? Yeah. So you get it at the end of Q1. You're like, okay, cool. So we lost a quarter. Yeah. Now we're playing catch up. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, it's good chat. Great chat. Great chat. Thank you once again, Jennifer, if you're listening. Uh, Fantastic having you on uh, a second time. Mm -hmm. All right, V. Hey, wait, one last thing. The fact that some of these people actually come back a second time is a testament (laughs) to us. I got to say that. (laughs) No? Yeah. Well, you're just charming, so I'll give you that. (laughs) I just laugh a lot. I'm always smiling. All right. Okay, buddy. Have a great day, buddy. Yeah, you too. Adieu.